Section 8 of The Red Laugh by Leonid Andreev. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Part 2, Fragments 16 through 18. Fragment 16. Today is the eighth day of the battle. It began last Friday, and Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday have passed. And Friday has come again and is gone. And it is still going on, both armies. Hundreds of thousands of men are standing in front of each other, never flinching, sending explosive, crashing projectiles without stopping. And every instant living men are turning into corpses. The roar and incessant vibration of the air has made the very sky shudder and gather black thunderclouds above their heads while they continue to stand in front of each other, never flinching and still killing each other. If a man does not sleep for three nights, he becomes ill and loses his memory. But they have not slept for a whole week and are all mad. That is why they feel no pain, do not retreat and go on fighting until they have killed all to the last man. They say that some of the detachments came to the end of their ammunition, but still they fought on using their fists and stones and biting at each other like dogs. If the remnants of those regiments return home, they will have canine teeth like wolves. But they will not return. They have gone mad and die, every man of them. They have gone mad. Everything is muddled in their heads and they cease to understand anything. If they were to be turned round suddenly and sharply, they would begin firing at their own men, thinking that they were firing at the enemy. Strange rumors, strange rumors that are told in a whisper, those repeating them turning white from horror and dreadful forebodings. Brother, brother, listen what is being told of the Red Laugh. They say phantom regiments have appeared, large bands of shadows, the exact copy of living men. At night, when the men forget themselves for an instant in sleep, or in the thick of the day's fight, when the bright day itself seems a phantom, they suddenly appear, firing out of phantom guns, filling the air with phantom noises, and men, living but insane men, astounded by the suddenness of the attack, fight to the death against the phantom enemy, go mad from horror, become gray in an instant, and die. The phantoms disappear as suddenly as they appear, and all becomes still, while the earth is strewn with fresh, mutilated bodies. Who killed them? You know, brother, who killed them. When there is a lull between two battles and the enemy is far off, suddenly in the darkness of the night there resounds a solitary frightened shot, and all jump up and begin firing into the darkness, into the silent, dumb darkness, for a long time, for whole hours. Whom do they see there? Whose terrible, silent shape full of horror and madness appears before them? You know, brother, and I know, but men do not know yet. But they have a foreboding and ask, turning pale, Why are there so many madmen? Before there never used to be so many. Before there never used to be so many madmen, they say, turning pale, trying to believe that now it is as before, and that the universal violence done to the brains of humanity would have no effect upon their weak little intellects. Why, men fought before and always have fought, and nothing of the sort happened. Strife is a law of nature, they say with conviction and calmness, 
growing pale nevertheless, seeking for the doctor with their eyes and calling out hurriedly, Water! Quick, a glass of water! They would willingly become idiots, those people, only not to feel their intellect reeling and their reason succumbing in the hopeless combat with insanity. In those days when men over there were constantly being turned into corpses, I could find no peace and sought the society of my fellow men. And I heard many conversations and saw many false smiling faces that asserted that the war was far off and in no way concerned with them. But much oftener I met naked, frank horror, hopeless, bitter tears, and frenzy cries of despair when the great mind itself cried out of man in its last prayer, its last curse with all the intensity of its power. Whenever will the senseless carnage end? At some friends, whom I had not seen for a long time, perhaps several years, I unexpectedly met a mad officer, invalided from the war. He was a schoolfellow of mine, but I did not recognize him. If he had lain for a year in his grave, he would have returned more like himself than he was then. His hair was gray and his face quite white. His features were but little changed, but he was always silent and seemed to be listening to something. And this stamped upon his face a look of such formidable remoteness, such indifference to all around him, that it was fearful to talk to him. His relatives were told he went mad in the following circumstances. They were in the reserve, while the neighboring regiment was ordered to make a bayonet charge. The men rushed, shouting, hurrah, so loudly as almost to drown the noise of the cannon. And suddenly the guns ceased firing. The hurrah ceased also and a sepulchral stillness ensued. They had run up to the enemy, and were charging him with their bayonets. And his reason succumbed to that stillness. Now he is calm when people make a noise around him, talk and shout. He listens and waits. But if only there is a moment's silence, he catches hold of his head, rushes up to the wall or against the furniture, and falls down in a fit resembling epilepsy. He has many relations, and they take turns, and surround him with sound. But there remain the nights, long, solitary nights. But here his father, a gray-haired old man, slightly wandering in his mind, too, helped. He hung the walls of his son's room with loudly ticking clocks that constantly struck the hour at different times, and at present he is arranging a wheel resembling an incessantly going rattle. None of them lose hope that he will recover, as he is only twenty-seven, and their house is even gay. He is dressed very cleanly, not in his uniform. Great care is taken of his appearance, and he is even handsome with his white hair, young, thoughtful face, and well-bred, slow, tired movements. When I was told all, I went up and kissed his hand, his white, languid hand, which will never more be lifted for a blow, and this did not seem to surprise anybody very much. Only his young sister smiled at me with her eyes, and afterward showed me such attention that it seemed as if I were her betrothed, and she loved me more than anybody in the world. She showed me such attention that I very nearly told her about my dark, empty rooms in which I am worse than alone. Miserable heart that never loses hope. And she managed that we remain alone. How pale you are, and what dark rings you have under your eyes, she said kindly. Are you ill? Are you grieving for your brother? I am grieving for everybody, and I do not feel well. 
I know why you kissed my brother's hand. They did not understand. Because he is mad, yes? Yes, because he is mad. She grew thoughtful and looked very much like her brother, only younger. And will you? She stopped and blushed, but did not lower her eyes. Will you let me kiss your hand? I kneeled before her and said, Bless me. She paled slightly, drew back and whispered with her lips, I do not believe. And I also. For an instant her hand touched my head, and the instant was gone. Do you know, she said, I am leaving for the war. Go, but you will not be able to bear it. I do not know, but they need help, the same as you or my brother. It is not their fault. Will you remember me? Yes, and you? And I will remember you, too. Goodbye. Goodbye forever. And I grew calm and felt happier, as if I had passed through the most terrible that there is in death and madness. And yesterday, for the first time, I entered my house calmly without any fear, and opened my brother's study and sat for a long time at his table. And when in the night I suddenly awoke as if from a push, and heard the scraping of the dry pen upon the paper, I was not frightened, but thought to myself almost with a smile, Work on, brother, work on. Your pen is not dry, it is steeped in living human blood. Let your paper seem empty. In its ominous emptiness it is more eloquent of war and reason than all that is written by the most clever men. Work on, brother, work on! And this morning I read that the battle is still raging. And again I was possessed with a dread fear and a feeling of something falling upon my brain. It is coming. It is near. It is already standing upon the threshold of these empty, light rooms. Remember. Remember me, dear girl. I am going mad. Thirty thousand dead. Thirty thousand dead. Fragment 17. A fight is going on in the town. There are dark and fearful rumors. Fragment 18. This morning, looking through the endless list of killed in the newspaper, I saw a familiar name. My sister's affianced husband. An officer called for military service at the same time as my dead brother was killed. And an hour later, the postman handed me a letter addressed to my brother, and I recognized the handwriting of the deceased on the envelope. The dead was writing to the dead. But still it was better so than the dead writing to the living. A mother was pointed out to me who kept receiving letters from her son for a whole month after she had read of his terrible death in the papers. He had been torn to pieces by a shell. He was a fond son, and each letter was full of endearing and encouraging words and youthful, naive hopes of happiness. He was dead, but wrote of life with a fearful accuracy every day, and the mother ceased to believe in his death. And when a day passed without any letter, then a second and a third, and the endless silence of death ensued, she took a large, old-fashioned revolver belonging to her son in both hands and shot herself in the breast. I believe she survived, but I am not sure. I never heard. 
I looked at the envelope for a long time and thought, he held it in his hands. He bought it somewhere. He gave the money to pay for it. And a servant went to fetch it from some shop. He sealed and perhaps posted it himself. Then the wheel of the complex machine called Post came into action, and the letter glided past forests, fields, and towns, passing from hand to hand but rushing infallibly towards its destination. He put on his boots that morning while it went gliding on. He was killed, but it glided on. He was thrown into a pit and covered up with dead bodies and earth, while it still glided on past forests, fields, and towns, a living phantom in a gray stamped envelope. And now I was holding it in my hands. Here are the contents of the letter. It was written with a pencil on scraps of paper and was not finished. Something interfered. Only now do I understand the great joy of war, the ancient primitive delight of killing man, clever, scheming, artful man, immeasurably more interesting than the most ravenous animal. To be ever taking life is as good as playing at lawn tennis with planets and stars. Poor friend, what a pity you are not with us, but are constrained to weary away your time amidst an unleavened daily existence. In an atmosphere of death, you would have found all that your restless, noble heart yearned for. A bloody feast! What truth there is in this somewhat hackneyed comparison. We go about up to our knees in blood, and this red wine, as my jolly men call it in jest, makes our heads swim. To drink the blood of one's enemy is not at all such a stupid custom as we think. They knew what they were doing. The crows are cawing. Do you hear? The crows are cawing. From whence have they all gathered? The sky is black with them. They settle down beside us, having lost all fear, and follow us everywhere. And we are always underneath them, like a black lace sunshade or a moving tree with black leaves. One of them approached quite close to my face and wanted to peck at it. He thought, most probably, that I was dead. The crows are cawing, and this troubles me a little. From whence have they all gathered? Yesterday we stabbed them all sleeping. We approached stealthily scarcely touching the ground with our feet, as if we were stalking wild ducks. We stole up to them so skillfully and cautiously that we did not touch a corpse and did not scare one single crow. We stole up like shadows, and the night hid us. I killed the sentry myself, knocked him down and strangled him with my hands so as not to let him cry out. You understand the slightest sound, and all would have been lost. But he did not cry out. He had no time, I believe, even to guess that he was being killed. They were all sleeping around the smoldering fires, sleeping peacefully as if they were at home in their beds. We hacked about us for more than an hour, and only a few had time to awake before they received their death blow. They howled and, of course, begged for mercy. They used their teeth. One bit off a finger on my left hand, with which I was cautiously holding his head. He bit off my finger, but I twisted his head clean off. How do you think? Are we quits? How they did not all wake up, I cannot imagine. One could hear their bones crackling and their bodies being hacked. Afterwards, we stripped all naked and divided their clothes amongst ourselves. My friend, don't get angry over a joke. With your susceptibility, you will say this savors of marauding. But then we are almost naked ourselves. Our clothes are quite worn out. 
I have been wearing a woman's jacket for a long time and resemble more a... than an officer of a victorious army. By the by, you are, I believe, married, and it is not quite right for you to read such things. But you understand. Women. Damn it. I am young and thirst for love. Stop a minute. I believe it was you who was engaged to be married. It was you, was it not, who showed me the portrait of a young girl and told me she was your promised bride? And there was something sad, something very sad and mournful underneath it, and you cried. That was a long time ago, and I remember it but confusedly. There's no time for softness at war. And you cried. What did you cry about? What was there written that was as sad and mournful as a drooping flower? And you kept crying and crying. Were you not ashamed, an officer, to cry? The crows are calling. Do you hear, friend? The crows are calling. What do they want? Further on, the pencil-written lines were effaced, and it was impossible to decipher the signature. And strange to say, the dead man called forth no comparison in me. I distinctly pictured to myself his face, in which all was soft and delicate as a woman's the color of his cheeks, the clearness and morning freshness of the eyes, the beard so bushy and soft that a woman could almost have adorned herself with it. He liked books, flowers, and music, feared all that was coarse, and wrote poetry. My brother, as a critic, declared that he wrote very good poetry, and I could not connect all that I knew and remembered of him with the calling crows, bloody carnage, and death. The crows are cawing. And suddenly, for one mad, unutterably happy instant, I clearly saw that all was a lie, and that there was no war. There were no killed, no corpses. There was no anguish of reeling, helpless thought. I was sleeping on my back and seeing a dream, as I used to in my childhood. Silent dread rooms, devastated by death and terror and myself with a wild letter in my hand. My brother was living, and they were all sitting at the tea table, and I could hear the noise of the crockery. The crows are cawing. No, it is but true. Unhappy earth, it is true. The crows are cawing. It is not the invention of an idle scribbler aiming at cheap effects, or of a madman who has lost his senses. The crows are cawing. Where is my brother? He was noble-hearted and gentle and wished no one evil. Where is he? I am asking you, you cursed murderers. I am asking you, you cursed murderers. Crows sitting on carrion, wretched, imbecile animals before the whole world. For you are animals. What did you kill my brother for? If you had a face, I would give you a blow upon it. But you have no face. You have only the snout of a wild beast. You pretend that you are men, but I see claws under your gloves and the flat skull of an animal under your hat. Hidden beneath your clever conversation, I hear insanity rattling its rusty chains. And with all the power of my grief, my anguish, and dishonored thought, I curse you, you wretched, imbecile animals. End of section 8.